Turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You didn't expect that we were going to have a strobe light in here this morning when you came in. Just joking. <clears throat> Sorry. Yeah, bad joke. Matt Hyde is rubbing off on me. <laughs> okay. First uh, Corinthians chapter 1 is where we'll be this morning. Forgive me. My vo- I had woke up with a frog in my throat, so I will try to make it through. And uh, yeah, there's an eagle in my throat. Sure. Okay, we need to be on track here. First Corinthians chapter 1, and let's begin reading in verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Uh, This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me now? Father, in this moment... I pray that you would show us the surpassing worth of knowing and following Jesus Christ. Help us to see that we've been set aside, set apart, made special for him so that we might not live our lives for ourselves, but for the one who gave up his life so that we might be free. Lord, if we can ask our our teenagers to do that, how can we not look at ourselves and say, am I living that way? And so, Father, I pray that every person in this room from the oldest down to the youngest would be captured by a vision of the beauty of your son and the worthiness of following him. Lord, we thank you for servants who uh, take the lead in this and set the example for us. I think of the W family as they prepare to launch out and Uh, Go to a place that uh, doesn't know anything about you, where people have not even had the chance to hear the good news of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would protect and that you would uh, provide for them and that you would strengthen them for the great work, which will surely have many obstacles. And I pray that you would give them the endurance they need to complete the work and get it done. Lord, I pray for Pastor Guy as he prepares to travel yet again here in the next few weeks and uh, share the gospel of Christ uh, in 
uh, the Pacific Islands. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would anoint him with your power, with true gospel words, with uh, uh, the, the favor to lead a, a team well and to uh, see fruit born in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you as well for Scott and Renee Royal and the ministry that they do at the Tesoro Escondido Ranch and the way that they quietly, often behind the scenes, just are faithful and minister to so many uh, in, in ways that we don't even perceive. Lord, we're just thankful to be able to um, rub shoulders with people who've given their lives for this sort of thing. And there are many others in this room and being launched out through our International Mission Board uh, Jason and Robin Ebuyer, people like this who uh, have given their lives to you, and, and we just want to pause for a moment and ask your blessing on their ministry, Father. And Lord, as we launch out into a new series, 1 Corinthians, I pray that you would, uh, that you would use this book as you've done down through the centuries in the lives of millions, that you would change the lives of those who hear your word preached. Lord, help us to see you and to respond with worship, faith, and hope, and ultimately love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite childhood movies, I'm sure you would uh, agree, many of you, with this, is the 1993 classic, The Sandlot. How many of you, that's one of your favorites as well? Excuse me. Even though the movie is set in the 1960s, I felt like when I watched that movie for the first time as a young boy, that I could relate with the main character, a fifth grader by the name of Scott Smalls. He tries, to make his, he tries his best to make friends after moving into a new neighborhood where all the boys on every block and in every house are just obsessed with the game of baseball. But the problem for Smalls is that he isn't just unskilled in the game of baseball, he's completely unaware of anything baseball related. Well, in one scene, almost painful to watch, Smalls sees his chance. By the way, this is a kind of a spoiler thing, so if you haven't seen the movie, plug your ears. But it's been, you know, a long time. So anyway, in one scene, uh, Smalls sees his chance to be the hero for once when his friend Benny literally knocks their only baseball out of its own seams. Smalls immediately remembers, hey, my stepdad has a baseball. It's just resting on the mantelpiece in his study. I can go get that, and I'll bring it out here, and we can start to play. And so Smalls races home and quickly returns with the ball, which happens to have been signed by Yankees legend Babe Ruth. Smalls doesn't even know who that is. He doesn't mention anything to the boys, and all seems well until he himself cracks his first home run over the fence where the ball immediately becomes the property of the beast, a gigantic junkyard dog of mythical proportions. When the group finds out that they had been playing with a priceless trophy signed by the great Bambino himself, they are mortified. Why did you do that? Why would you bring something so valuable, something so priceless, and just play with it in the sandlot? Of course, it takes the rest of the movie to show how the conflict resolves, but there's a reason 
why that baseball was displayed on the mantelpiece. Smalls didn't understand what that reason was, but there was a reason. From the moment it, I mean, it was just a baseball, right? There are millions like it, but from the moment it began to bear the name of a legend, the great Babe Ruth, it became something altogether different. It was special. It was set apart, set aside, no longer fit to be tossed around a dusty, vacant lot. If any one of those boys could have stopped their friend from making this grave mistake, from taking a trophy and turning it into a trifle, they would have yelled, stop, that's not what that's for. That one's different. That one's special. Set that baseball aside. Let's go do something else. Today we're beginning a new sermon series based on a letter we call 1 Corinthians. And what we're going to find as we study this letter paragraph by paragraph over the next several months, is that the believers in the church in Corinth had a problem very similar to our friend Smalls. See, here's what they were doing. They were taking something special, something that was supposed to be set apart, and they were cheapening it so that they could fit in with the kids around the block. Essentially, that's what they were doing. In their case, it wasn't a baseball, though, signed by an athlete. It was the mighty temple bearing the name of the King of Kings. It was the church of God at Corinth, bought with a price and set apart for Jesus. But they were filling it with the values of the world. In the mind of Paul, the man who wrote this letter, it's like the church was a huge Beautiful temple, a sanctuary set apart for Christ, but situated on a street in the city of man. And it's like the caretakers of the temple, the people who were supposed to be trimming the lamps and making sure everything was in place, instead had opened the windows to the sanctuary to let the prevailing winds of pride and pagan immorality to waft in and crowd out the aroma of holiness. I've entitled this sermon series, The Temple of Christ, in the city of man, because that's, why, that, that's really what any church is. We belong to Jesus. We're supposed to be his sanctuary. We're supposed to be reserved for him. We're supposed to be set apart for him, but we sojourn in the city of man, don't we? We live amidst the projects and the priorities of humankind. We've been reserved for heaven, but we continue to reside here on earth, and I think what you'll see is that the church in the city of Corinth is sort of a paradigm of the church in any, in any age and certainly uh, an example of the, the kinds of struggles that we face as a church as well. Today's passage sets the stage to speak to us in this situation. And in the opening verses of Paul's first canonical letter to the church at Corinth, God's message to us is basically this. Although you, church are sojourning in man's city. You're set apart for God's son. Although you are sojourning in man's city, you're set apart for God's son. And we're going to see five ways in which that's true. Five ways that God has set us apart for Jesus Christ. First of all, notice with me that the church is set apart through God's apostle. The church is set apart through God's apostle. Notice the very first verse, excuse me. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Why does 1 Corinthians begin this way? Simply because this is a letter. 
This is how ancient people began their letters. This was a very common way. They would state the sender's name. Then they would say who the letter is written to. Then they offer a word of greeting. That's just how it was done back then. So just as an aside, the fact that this document is a letter impacts the way that we read 1 Corinthians, doesn't it? It changes the way that we read it. As you're studying this book, keep that in mind. This is a letter, so essentially what we're seeing is one side of an ongoing conversation. Paul is speaking into a situation that's ongoing. It's an occasional document that's meant to address an occasion. Part of what drives the content is previous correspondence that's taken, taken place between Paul and the members of the church at other times. It's a letter. That means Paul had to fit a lot of communication in a little bit of space. There isn't a lot of uh, space for him to get out what he wants to say. And even though this letter actually constitutes almost 10,000 words in the English translation, Paul is actually squeezing a lot of theology into a few words. So when we unpack what we find in this letter, it's good and appropriate to take our time. And to recognize that every detail is here for a reason. If it were extraneous, if it were unnecessary, Paul would not have said it. Because parchment is precious. Uh, they didn't have a postal service back then. You couldn't go to the copy center and uh, just kind of run off a copy or send an email. So everything that is uh, included is important. This is a summary of Paul's theology. At the same time, you'll notice that this is not a letter between two friends. It's not intended to be kept private. It's more of an open letter intended to be read by Christians at all times. Notice that he addresses all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is including in this letter what is relevant not just to the church at Corinth, but what's relevant to believers in all places. Uh, there's other stuff that he wants to say to them, but he's basically going to save it till later. He says that in chapter 5. He says... Uh, here's, here's some instruction, and uh, I'm going to give you some instruction now, and then when I come, we'll, we'll get into more detail about it. So he's giving us just exactly what is necessary for us to understand as believers everywhere. It's not just about Corinth, it's about us too. So this is a letter, it's written by a man named Paul, who's that? Paul, uh, whose Jewish name is Saul is one of the most prominent figures in the early church. 13 out of 27 New Testament books bear Paul's name. He was born in Tarsus, an important city, what is now southern Turkey, but he moved at an early age to Jerusalem in order to study the Jewish religion under a famous rabbi named Gamaliel. As a young man, most of you know this story, he became very zealous for the Jewish religion, even to the point where he became one of the chief persecutors of the followers of Jesus Christ. And that all changed one day when he met the risen Jesus. It didn't happen in the conventional way like the other disciples, but Paul himself actually became an apostle, a sent one of Jesus Christ, because he had a personal one-on-one -on -one encounter with the risen Christ. And so he's sent by the Holy Spirit to the known world to preach the good news of Christ in the synagogues and city squares around the, the empire, and that's how he ended up in Corinth. And, and uh, you can read about the time when Paul comes to Corinth in Acts chapter 18. I know I'm giving you a lot of information right at the beginning here, but this just sort of sets us up for uh, the rest of the book. Uh, basically what happens is this, Paul arrives at Corinth, and like he does in many other cities, he goes to the synagogue first and he begins to preach the gospel there. 
The men in the synagogue hear what he has to say. They reject the message. Paul begins to preach in the house of someone named Tertius Justus, and he does that for 18 months. Uh, So this church is one of the largest churches in the entire region. Corinth, of course, is one of the most important cities in the region. And so Paul is the man who's writing this letter. Paul is the man who first preached the gospel in the city of Corinth, and so he's intimately acquainted with all the issues that he is going to address in this letter. He knows these people personally. He knows them. He has ministered to them for a long time. It was primarily through his ministry that the church had been set apart by God. By the way, there's another man writing this letter with him, this, this man named Sosthenes. Who's that? Uh, that's a name that the Corinthian believers knew very well. Sosthenes had been one of the men who early on, when they heard the gospel Paul was preaching, had told him, we don't like what you have to say, and they tried to drive him out. Actually, they brought him before the city governor. And that didn't go very well, so people became frustrated, and they dragged Sosthenes outside, and they beat Sosthenes because he was such a poor leader, I suppose. And yet somehow, later on, Paul was able to minister to him, and he became not only a follower of Christ, but a fellow worker with the apostle. Paul was called to this role by the will of God. That's an extremely important phrase. It hints at something he's going to bring out later on in the letter, and we'll spend more time talking about it when that time comes, and 1 Corinthians chapter 9. But for now, it's important for us to know that when God decided he wanted to build a temple, a a sanctuary, a special people for his son in the city of Corinth, he set them apart through the ministry of Paul, his apostle, his sent one. He set the church apart through God's apostle. Quickly, uh, Number two, the church is also, it's not only set apart through God's apostle, the church, number two, is set apart as God's people. Verse two tells us this letter is written primarily to the church of God that is in Corinth, and it would be very easy for us to gloss over that word church, like we all know what a church is, right? Indian Creek Baptist Church, or First Church of the Nazarene, or First This, or, you know, church, who cares? But... I've learned in my limited ministry experience that different people mean different things when they use that word. So let's spend just a moment talking about what Paul means when he uses this word church. You'll be interested to know that in the city of Corinth, there was actually a very normal, straightforward, uh, well-known way that people organized themselves into social groups in this city. They, uh, it was, it's well known that these uh, residents of this city of Corinth, they would, uh, they would uh, organize themselves based on their profession. So you had the, uh, you know, the, the guilds for metal workers, you had uh, a guild for uh, people who were uh, bakers and, and the butchers and the candlestick makers, you get the idea, you know, there were these uh, professional guilds and that's who you hung out with, people that made tents, you know, all, all hung out together, people who were baking uh, all hang out together. The metal workers, they all hung out together. And there was a religious flavor to these guilds, these clubs. So the Corinthian believers already had, as part of their culture, a way of grouping themselves by affinity and folding their spiritual b- beliefs into those groupings. Now, if Paul would have been living today, and he went to the you know, church growth expert, the church growth expert would have said, Paul, this is a great opportunity. Just organize the church 
based on the same way that these professional guilds are organized. And Paul could have been writing to the club, the Jesus club, at Corinth. We're going to see later on, this is kind of what the Corinthians try to do. But Paul doesn't want that. Now understand, there's no pressure on him externally to organize the church in, in, in any way. He, couldn't go to, he didn't go to Corinth and say, okay, this is how we're going to do it because this is the way the Baptists have always done it. Because there weren't, I know this is hard to believe, but there were not Baptists, okay? Paul was the first one to show up in Corinth and preach the gospel. So he's the very first person. If you were in Paul's shoes, you might think, hey, it's better to organize the church around the existing social structures. But Paul doesn't address this letter to the club or to the guild of followers of Christ. He addresses it to the church. Where does he get that word? And I would submit to you that Paul and the other apostles following Jesus' lead didn't come up with the church because it was convenient or because it was culturally palatable. They got the church from the Bible. I've said this before, and I'm sure I'm going to say it again as we study this letter. But if you want to understand Paul's letters, you have to start with Paul's Bible. If you want to understand Paul's letters... You have to start with Paul's Bible, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, the 39 books of the Old Testament. Not the culture, not the archaeology of this or that city, not the way that this city was organized. I mean, all those things are nice and they're okay, but you have to start with Paul's Bible. Don't have itching ears. Don't be impatient to hear something new. Keep it simple. Just understand that Paul studied from childhood and memorized and meditated upon the Bible. And so his teaching is rooted deep in the soil of the Old Testament. And if we read Paul's Bible, we come to understand what he means when he addresses this people as the church of God. In the first five books of the Bible, uh, the people are constantly referred to as the congregation or the assembly. Uh, they gather, the whole congregation, they come out of their tents and they assemble around the tent of meeting so they can worship the Lord. The congregation makes decisions together as a group. The congregation presents themselves before the Lord as an assembly. There's, there's constantly this emphasis on gathering as an official body for important purposes to worship or to govern or to listen. And that thread runs right through the Old Testament. But when Jewish scholars in the time before Paul decided, okay, we want to take the Bible and we want to make it a little more accessible to the average person. So we're going to translate this from Hebrew into the common language of the day, the, the Greek language. They translated this set of, of ideas, which there's a, a number of Hebrew words for it, but they used the word ekklesia, church, to translate this. And it was the perfect word because in the Greek language, an ekklesia is an official assembly of people who gather for an important purpose and often to exercise a measure of authority. That's what an ecclesia is. And so that's the word that Paul uses here in chapter 1. Ecclesia. To the ecclesia of God. To God's congregation. To God's official assembly. To God's honored people. The church of God might have been in the city of Corinth. A commercial hub filled with foul-mouthed sailors and dotted with shady establishments. But they were just as dignified and set apart as the children of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. This is what God tells the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 19. You are a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're my holy nation. 
And Paul takes all of that idea and he says, that is you, church of God at Corinth. You are God's holy people. And it's this emphasis, this dignified and holy calling that Paul obviously means to emphasize when he goes on to say that they are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Again, I know we're really in the weeds here, but you need to understand this because this is the key to understanding the entire book. These are more words. It's really easy to misunderstand. So let's just consider them, and then we're going to tie all this together. See, when I think of the word sanctification or sanctified, you see that there in, in, those, in uh, verse 2. When I hear those words, when I read those words, I think something like spiritual growth, don't you? Like sanctification is this process that God takes us on to go from immature spiritually to spiritual maturities. That's called sanctification. That's the, that's the way that we often use it. But you need to understand that is not how Paul uses those that family of words in 1 Corinthians. He's not talking about spiritual, spiritual growth. He's talking about the fact that all believers, specifically in the church at Corinth, are set apart from the world and reserved for the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not talking about progressive sanctification. He's talking about a moment in time when their position in Christ changes from in the world to set apart from the world. That's what it means. So when I say the word, when we read the word sanctified, you think in your mind set apart. Sanctified, set apart. Same thing with that word saint. You see it there in verse 2. Saint. Don't think St. Catherine or St. Paul or St. Augustine. No. It's just someone who's been set apart. That's what the church is. The church has been set apart. Saint means set apart. Sometimes we use the word holy. It's the same idea. So what Paul is saying is this. He's saying, believers in Corinth, you are God's congregation. You are God's special people. You are holy. Just like when God spoke directly to the nation of Israel and said, you're a holy nation, so it is with you, church. You are already holy. You are already set apart. You're reserved for a special purpose. This is so important to understand because as we keep reading in this letter, we're going to see that even though the Corinthian believers are set apart, set aside for God's special work, they were not living like they were set apart. They were living as though they were pulled back into the world. And the same is true of us. We are set apart, and yet we live as if we want to be in the world. This needs to hit home with us, and I pray it does over and over again in the coming months. Like, don't misunderstand what it means to say that this church, Indian Creek Baptist Church, is the church of God. It's not church. Uh, People throw that word around to make it mean whatever we want. But, folks, let's think biblically here. It's not church when your kids leave you alone for 20 minutes and you're able to open your Bible and spend time with God. You need to do that. That's important. And you can worship God in the quiet of your own home at the dining room table with your open Bible. But that is not church. Do you understand that? It's not church when you have a, a, 
you go on a bike ride on a beautiful day and you observe that God made the trees and the wind and, and the sky and, and the birds and everything and you worship, that's awesome. That's important. That's really good to do. But it's not church. It's not church when you have a devotional in the dugout or the bleachers before the game because your kids' sports are taking place on Sunday morning. Folks, that is not church. I'm, telling, I'm not trying to dunk on anybody. I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad. I'm just saying that you're shortchanging yourself when you downgrade the meaning of church. The, tur- the church is the temple of the living God. It's not the building. Of course not the building. We all know that. But this people who gather in this building, when we get together, when we are gathered officially accountable to one another and we are in the presence of God as he promises he will be with us when we're gathered in his name, then we are God's congregation. We are set apart for him. That is mind-blowingly awesome. That we are God's church. You are set apart as the people of God. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the body of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. God is jealous for his church. It's special to him. It's set apart to him. You are his people. Don't ever knock the people of God. Don't ever, ever, ever go on social media and complain about the church. That's not your job to do. It's not your bride, it's Christ's bride. Because here's what you're doing when you do that. You're saying, you're communicating, you didn't mean to do it, but this is what you're saying. You're saying, I as an individual am better than the bride of Christ. No. That's Christ's people. And if you think that the world is going to love you more if you distance yourself from the church of God, with all its imperfections, then think again, because the world hates the church for one simple reason. It's because the world hates Jesus. The world's master hates Jesus. They're never going to love the church, ever. Now, that's not to say that the church, least of all Indian Creek, and certainly not the church at Corinth, is all that God intends for us to be. In fact, The disconnect between our holy position in Christ, the fact that we're set apart, and the way that we actually live is the whole point behind everything that Paul says in this letter. He's saying, you've been sanctified. You've been set apart. You're saints. Now let's talk about some things that are going on in the church that don't jive with that. Now, In order to understand this, uh, the the identity of God's church is sanctified, set apart, sets the tone for the whole letter. Understand what Paul's going to do. He doesn't say something like this. He doesn't say, here's a problem. You guys are doing the wrong thing. This is how you need to do it differently. That's not the way Paul's going to reason in 1 Corinthians. He does something like this. He says, here's a problem. Now let's look at this problem in light of what Scripture says about who you are in Christ as God's set apart people. Now let's live like that's true. See the difference? So important. Because Paul is going to challenge and confront the way that we live, folks. In this letter, you're going to be confronted and challenged. And it's not him saying, you're doing it wrong, do it differently. He's saying, you're doing it wrong, here's what you're thinking. Think differently, and then you'll live differently. Okay? 
The church is set apart, live like it, set apart through God's apostle, set apart as God's people. Thirdly, notice that the church is set apart by God's grace. The church is set apart by God's grace. Uh, you'll notice the pattern that Paul follows. It's a very normal pattern for a letter. A letter. He identifies himself as the sender, along with Sosthenes. He identifies the church, as well as all believers everywhere, as the recipients. And then in verse 3, following his typical pattern, Paul offers a word of greeting. Now, uh, there are many letters from this time period that survive. This greeting is normal. Uh, if you were a Jewish person writing to another Jewish person, your greeting might say something like this, shalom, peace, right? If you're a Gentile writing to another Gentile, then you would say something like greetings. And Paul kind of takes both of those greetings, the Jewish greeting and the Gentile greeting, and he combines them together and he adds a little bit of a twist. He says he wishes peace and he also wishes not for greetings, but for grace, he changes Kyrain, greetings, to Charis, grace. So he says, I'm praying for grace and peace. I pray that you experience God's grace, the gift of God, which brings you into fellowship with him. And I pray that you arrive at his peace, the wholeness toward which God's redeemed world is moving. And then in verse 4, he begins to offer thanksgiving to God for that same grace. So he prays for them to know God's grace, and he thanks God for grace already given. But the point is that all believers, every church, has been set apart as God's special people by God's grace in Christ Jesus. At the very beginning, it's so critical that we acknowledge the engine driving everything Paul says in this letter. God has poured out his grace at the cross of Christ and in the empty tomb. Think about this. If some of you are very familiar with this book already, think about it. The first several chapters, where is Paul's focus? On the cross. The last major section of the book, where is his focus? The resurrection. So from beginning to end, Paul's focus is on the grace of God in Christ. The goodness of what God has done for us in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That controls the way we think about everything else. Why is it that the church of Corinth is special to God? Is it because it is situated in wealthy and influential Corinth, a, a hub of Greco-Roman culture and power and wealth? Is that why they're so important to God? No. Is it because the Christians in Corinth were well-educated and sophisticated in their tastes, unlike the poor folks out in the villages? No, that's not why. Is it because they were so righteous in the way that they live? Well, read the letter and you'll find out, no, that's not it either. Why were they special? It's because of God's grace. It's because he loved the world. Because he sent his son to live and die for them. Because he raised Christ from the dead and joined believers to his only son by faith. The church deserves none of the credit. It's all about the glory of God. The church at Corinth might be situated in the city of man, but they are set apart for Jesus. They're set apart through God's apostle. Set apart as God's people. Set apart by God's grace. Fourthly, the church is set apart with God's provision, with God's provision. In many of Paul's letters, and this is no exception, Paul begins the letter with this word of thanksgiving. He says, I thank my God for, and then he lists out some specific things for which he is thankful. And he does that here, but notice what you might expect him to say is, I'm thankful to God 
because of all the ways that you're loving each other and you're obeying what God wants you to do and you're representing Christ well in your city. He doesn't say things like that. No, instead of focusing on the ways that, that God's working to change the way that they live, there's not much to, to, to be thankful about in the city of Corinth, as we'll see. He just he thanks God for what God has given them and equipped them with in order to make them holy. In other words, God has equipped them. He set them apart. He gave them speech and knowledge and every type of spiritual gift. He reserved them for the Lord Jesus, and then he gave them these gifts in order that they might be ready to live out their holy calling. And we're going to see that as we study this book. Uh, the, the church at Corinth had problems, but it's not because God didn't give them everything that they need in order to live obedient lives to him. They had people who could prophesy and people who could speak in tongues and people who had a word of knowledge and people who were wealthy and people of all kinds of backgrounds and people with all kinds of spiritual gifts. They had every type of Christian you can think of, and yet they still were struggling. I mean, they were kind of the, the kind of church that had a drummer and a backup drummer. You know, uh, the kind of church where the main preaching pastor, when he was out and somebody else had to preach, it was just as good, if not better, than the main preacher. It's the kind of church where three or four families had re really nice homes that they opened up to others and shared with the congregation. Like, does that sound familiar to any of you? God has given us so much, right? He's set us apart as a special people, and he's given us everything that we need to live in obedience as the temple of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's on purpose that Paul doesn't say, I thank God for the way you're using your gifts. Because they were using their spiritual gifts to puff themselves up instead of building up the church of God. It was like they had allowed the priorities and the principles of the city of man to seep into their skin and conform them to the prideful inclinations of the world around them. And yet every church is at least somewhere in the same place. God set his church apart, but he hasn't left us without provision. He's given us everything we need to live. So folks, God has set our church apart he set us apart through God's apostle. He set us apart as God's people. He set us apart by God's grace, with God's provision. Fifthly, the church is set apart for God's son. For God's son. Beginning in the second half of verse 7, notice. Paul reminds the believers at Corinth that there's actually a goal toward which all of this is moving, isn't there? He, he says, you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you till the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, there's a day coming when the church set apart for Jesus will be invited into full, eternal, unbroken fellowship with Jesus. The same Lord who hung upon the cross, who walked out of the tomb, who was seen by many, who ascended into heaven, is one day going to come back. Paul calls it the end, the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. The day when the church of God will be presented to God's Son, pure and holy and blameless, without blemish or spot. Think about the church at Corinth. I mean, this is the most prominent city. You could study it on your own. The most prominent city for hundreds of miles. It's situated on a narrow strip of land separating two entire provinces of the Roman Empire. 
Merchants from the east would dock their ships south of the city in the port of Sincre, and they would cart their goods up through the city to the harbor on the other side in the Gulf of Corinth so that they could trade with the wealthy cities in the west. The western merchants, they would come and they would take the same route, but just go the opposite direction. So all of this unimaginable wealth is funneled through this one city of Corinth. With all its enticements, they would pass through the streets. Corinth was founded as a Greek city, but after being destroyed by the Romans and lying in ruins for a century, it was refounded by Julius Caesar as a Roman colony in 44 BC. So think about what that means, folks. This is 100 years after that. All of the city's principal residents, they're not these ancient families like you have in older cities. It's not old money. All the principal residents are military veterans, recently freed slaves, men and women who had grown up in poverty and shame but were being given their first chance at upward mobility in Corinth. So this was a city teeming with hungry and ambitious entrepreneurs, ladder climbers, new money. They all could see the glories of wealth and power just beyond their reach and for the first time in their lives they could see, hey, if I just work hard, I can just grasp it. And they were living their lives for for that, for today, for here and now. And Paul says to God's church, I thank God that you're not stuck doing that. I'm so thankful that you're set apart for something different. I thank God that you're reserved not for the day of your own glory, not for the day that you break through the ceiling into the next level of executive management, But for the day that you stand before the throne of King Jesus, you are for him. I'm thankful for that. You're his bride. You're his one and only. And in this letter, I'm going to invite you to live as if that were actually true. If you were to drive over to my house today and open the garage door, please don't do that because I'm ashamed to say you'd see a very disorganized and cluttered mess. I've needed to clean my garage for a long time. I'm not sure when I'm going to do it because the longer I wait, the more work it's going to be and the less I want to do it. But in that garage on a shelf, there's a box that hasn't been opened for more than 16 years. And the reason, the reason that box, a box that followed us from South Carolina to Pennsylvania to Kentucky to Texas remains closed is because inside that box is a garment bag, and inside that garment bag is a white dress. It's the dress that my wife wore the day that we were married in Alba, Texas, on her mother's front porch. Now listen, that dress might be on a shelf in a very cluttered and filthy place, but it's still special. Imagine I come home from the office one day, and I walk past my daughter's room, and She would never do this, but imagine, just for the sake of imagination, I walk past her room, and I see her in her room. She's in there with her friend, and they're playing dress up, and one of them is wearing that wedding dress for fun. I don't think they really, I I don't even think they play dress up anymore, but I can tell you, if that were to happen, I would not say, oh, no big deal. I would be angry. I would be upset. I would be 
I would say, what are you doing wearing that dress? That's not for dress up. That's not just to play in. That's not just for everyday use. That's special. That's set apart. See, what I'm trying to communicate is that the church of God, our church, your church, is way more special than a dress. It's way more special than a baseball signed by a baseball player. We are the bride of Christ. We are his reward. We are his special people, his sanctuary, his temple, his building, his body. And God has done everything necessary to set us aside. He's given us everything we need to live as though we're set apart to him. And he's saving us for the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that day when he returns to earth, he's given us everything we need to live like that's true. But are we living as though that's true? See, I'm a believer in Christ. Okay, but you're living like you belong to you. But you don't. You belong to him. You're living like you belong to now. But you don't. You belong to then. You're living like you belong to here, but you don't. You belong to there. Over the next several weeks, you're going to be shown specific ways that you have opened the windows of Christ's temple to let in the stench of the city of man. You're going to be shown ways that you have allowed the leaven of the world to infect the pure bread of Christ's body. You're going to be shown ways that the values of the kingdom of Satan have soaked into the skin of the body of Christ. By the way, that's going to happen on an individual level. And folks, it's going to happen on a corporate level too. The question is, are you going to pridefully say, no, I like the sounds and the smells of the city of man? I like the priorities and the prosperity and the pride of this life. Where you're going to humble yourself and say, yeah, I'm, I'm called to be different. Maybe you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus. Not in your heart. I wonder, as I'm talking here about the city of man, if that's even a little bit offensive to you. But what, what I need you to understand, what you must understand, is all those buildings in the city that man, men are building... All those monuments to human success and prosperity and pride and pleasure, they're all going to crumble sooner than you think. Do not invest your life in the city of man. Come apart. Give your life to Christ. See, when you look at that reality, the, the beauty, the temptations of the city of man, and you say, nah, you know, I think I'm going to make life all about the here and now anyway and, and say no to Jesus Christ. There is nothing more prideful than that, friend. There's nothing more rebellious than that. And what you need to know is that the day of the Lord Jesus Christ is a day that is certainly coming. And there is nothing more important than what Paul says in verse 7. Are you, in that day, going to be named guiltless on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's not going to happen on your own merit. That's only going to happen if you give your life to Christ. You're not going to be held guiltless on your own. Too late for that. The only way you can stand on that day is if Jesus takes the guilty verdict in your place. You have to believe in him and you have to become a part of his holy people. Set apart to serve him. Sojourning in man's city, but saved for God's son. Would you pray with me now? Father, thank you for sustaining us through this hour of
study. Thank you for this crystal clear truth that you have reserved your church not for the world, not for our own pleasures, not for man's priorities, but for your son. Lord, I pray that you would enable us to respond, not just in this next few moments, but for the rest of this week, our, our lives, as if that is true, because it is. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in a moment here, we're going to stand and respond, and here's how I would encourage you to think. I would encourage you, if you're a believer, maybe the Holy Spirit's doing something specific in your heart, and I certainly don't want to get in the way of that, but if I can just kind of bring it to a point, here's what I would encourage you to do. Give yourself to Christ in this way. Say, Jesus, whatever you show me, all the ways that I'm opening up the temple of Christ to the city of man, I pray that you'd show that to me and give me the faith to close that window and to be holy and set apart for God and live as if this were true. Maybe you're here today and you're not a believer and you need to come out of the city of man and into the sanctuary of Jesus. Okay, you understand I'm speaking in figures now. Um, to give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would encourage you as we stand and sing in just a moment uh, to respond in just those ways. Of course, we have people up in the front. Our elders are going to be up here. Some of their wives are going to be up here in the front. We'd love to show you from God's word how you can be, become a forgiven follower of Jesus Christ. And of course, we'd love to be able to pray with you about what God's doing in your life as well. So would you all stand and let's just take a moment to respond to God's word in our hearts.